Ah, the delicate sound of Finnish tango. Finns are usually not known for their passion. They're known for their sisu, roughly translated to guts. Not quite a national ideology. Sisu is something more along the lines of a national demeanor, perhaps with certain aesthetic philosophical implications, with deep roots into Finnish cultural history. A stoic, unflinching quality that has carried them through many a historical hardship. For those who have not experienced the sisu of Finnish people firsthand, hmm, how do I describe it? It's kind of like that friend, but stares you right in the eye and never seems to blink. Not necessarily in a threatening way, but more in, a, in the sense that you're starting to wonder if there's been some sort of communication error, because all you're getting is crickets from this motherfucker. Sisu is the awkward silence of the Arctic night. And yet, finding no awkwardness in any of the above. Self-assured, like a rock in the pine forest. It is as those words from Ibsen's Peer Gint. Under the skies men have a common saying, Man, to yourself be true. But here, amongst trolls, Troll, to thyself be enough. But how peculiar that this culture, on the northeastern bastion of Fenno-Scandinavia, should outsource all emotional expression to one thing, tango music. Finnish tango music is a huge cultural phenomenon. You think I'm joking when I'm saying it, that I'm trying to make some kind of mockery of Finnish people and their culture, but it's truly amazing stuff. I love it, and I mean it when I say it. I always say that melancholy is the most Scandinavian of moods, and what could possibly be more melancholic than Finns playing tango? I know I often say that Brute Norse is driven by spite and anger, that I aspire to make educational content that strikes fear and disgust in my audience. But, you know, if I actually stop and think about it, well, I also have a tender side. I suppose there's a healthy element of sadness and a sense of futility far beyond despair that I also want to bring out into the world. I have a sort of affinity for Finnish culture. I like to imagine that I understand what makes these motherfuckers tick. There's something about the wistfulness of Finnish tango that makes me believe that Finnish tango music is truly the language of the soul. But what if you have no soul? Did I ever tell you about the time I tried to sell my soul to the devil? When I was 16, I borrowed an unassuming little book from a friend. It was a small, kind of gimmicky book by the Norwegian sci-fi and fantasy author Tor Ågebringsvard. It was called Svarteboka, the black book. Pitch black pages with jello film blood-colored lettering. It contained a small selection of Norwegian grimoire spells, especially on the darker side. Those who have listened to the podcast for a while know exactly what kind of little shit I was in my teens and twenties, and to a certain degree still am. Being a culturally insatiable, I wanted to see if the spells worked, of course. I tried a few of the diagrams, I slept with a piece of paper under my head that promised to reveal a thief in my dreams. The only problem was that I couldn't even think of anything that had been stolen from me, so that was kind of pointless to begin with. But my attention soon turned to one of the spells to bind the devil. 
Binding the devil, I know, it's not technically selling your soul, but definitely putting it at risk, depending on your theological perspective. I did as the spell demanded, I snuck out to a crossroads on three consecutive Thursday nights. I guess it was more of an intersection than a crossroads when I think about it, but anyway, I went there with my piece of paper and said the words, if not incredibly loud, you know, I didn't want to get caught or anything. And so here's the thing. On the third night, not a single thing happened. So I went home and I went to sleep and continued living my life. It was only many years later, after years of academic study with casual occult reading on the side, that I actually realized one work that I had committed several years before had come to be in an oddly unexpected fashion. Basically, I was at a point in my life where I completely wished myself spirited away. Just anything, I want my life completely changed. And through some psychomagical ceremony that I completely improvised, I spun myself into some kind of ecstatic trance-like state. I woke up, forgot about it, and continued living my life. Two years later, I wake up in fucking New York City, and I have this weird realization that it was only now dawning on me how my life had completely changed. In those two years, I had gone from being a swamp cabin bachelor, doing freelance writing and working in a museum a couple of hours a week, desperately trying to keep afloat trying all too hard to pursue my only monomaniacal passions and receiving nothing in return. One day, I was fermenting in subterranean misery, and the next, I was a married expat in New York City, working a steady job in a field that I had no previous experience in, based on a vague hunch from my hiring manager that I would be a perfect fit. Up until then, I hadn't had any tremendous professional or economic success in my life, but nothing horribly bad had happened to me either. Life had been more a steady string of odd accidents and ordeals that I somehow mostly ended up benefiting from, just blessed with strange encounters. But all of the things that I actually pursued, and where I thought that my talents were best applied, there was just never any response. Nothing ever worked. At least not in a way that was sustainable in the long run. It always seemed to me that the things that incrementally bettered my life were freak coincidences that I had no control over. What the hell did I do to deserve this in the first place? It is almost as if magic is real in the most subtle and surprising ways. Fate has a way of sneaking up on you. Let us perhaps foolishly entertain the irrational question. When did it really start? What if I somehow managed to strike a bargain with old Eric, as we call him, at that intersection when I was 16? If so, what are the implications of that? Faustian Pact. Is my luck running out? Will I suddenly be struck with all the gruesome illnesses that I haven't gotten so far in my life? Break all of the bones that I otherwise would have all at once? Is my life just suddenly going to fall apart? Well, I don't fucking know. It's just a thought, anyway. I gotta write something to fill these intros, right? I'm Old Norse philologist Erik Stolzen, and you're listening to the Brute Norse Podcast, where we walk backwards into the future. Today we're talking about written magic in Scandinavia through the ages, honing in on the grimoire tradition of early modern Norway. Here's an episode on Norwegian folk magic. Specifically, I was hoping to address sorcery in the early modern period, 
and the time spanning roughly from the Protestant Reformation up until the Industrial Revolution, so that'll be the 1500s through 1800. But obviously the history of magic in Scandinavia does not begin or end there. We could probably extrapolate in either direction, and I think actually we should. But the core of what I want to address is the tradition surrounding books of magic, grimoires, what are often called svarteböcker, or black books, in Norwegian. We've talked about magic and sorcery several times on Brute Norse. In my articles online, as well as the podcast. For example, in episode 34, Viking Drone Warfare, I talked with Eldar Heide on the practice and concept of Seder, and its connection to Scandinavian beliefs about the mind's attachment to the spirit, as something that could leave the body and kind of wander off on its own, either deliberately, if you're some kind of sorcerer, or by accident, if you're kind of scatterbrained. There are actually many different ways by which this could happen. The spirit just kind of has a tendency to wander off on its own if you don't uh, have control over it, and it can leave your body while you're sleeping or in a trance, and that your mind or disembodied spirit or some kind of spirit envoy could come and go through your respiratory passages. Seder specifically seems to have been a divination technique in which the sorcerer produces a gander, that is a spirit envoy, often in the form of a spectral yarn, that retrieves distant or otherworldly information or manipulates things from a distance. Exactly how they did it is lost to us, but the general idea that some facet of your spirit can leave your body and influence the world still exists residually in parts of Scandinavia through folk beliefs about premonitions such as sneezing, foreshadowing visitors, or the idea that certain illnesses may be caused by the envy or grudges of other people. Sorcerers are deemed to be kind of expert manipulators of things that um, we either cannot do usually, at least not voluntarily, or they're able to do it because of some highly suspect or ambivalent technique. In descriptions of Norse sorcery, there's sometimes a bit of gasping and huffing going on, or, you know, itchy noses and whatnot. Pay extra attention to that if you're seeing uh, Robert Eggers' new film, The Northman. Uh, in certain scenes where um, a certain character kind of hyperventilates or is, keeps gasping when he's talking to the, uh, to the main character, and this is obviously quite a deliberate choice in this... Um, case, something that has been inserted by possibly Neil Price or one of the other uh, consultants that uh, Eggers uh, looked to in the production process here, who probably informed him about this complex and he probably thought it was compelling and, I don't know, cool enough to put in his movie. Even though nobody in the audience would probably know, unless of course they happen to have a relevant academic degree or read quite a lot of research about uh, Norse sorcery. Uh, or listen to the Brute Norse podcast, because I've talked about this many times before. But today we're not talking about pagan Viking Age magic. We're talking specifically about post-medieval and Christian magic. At least that's what I'm trying to do anyway. A tradition that heavily borrows from continental ideas and practices, but nevertheless contain many distinct elements of indigenous Scandinavian folk beliefs, superstitions, and folk religion, alongside any influences from what we could call the Western esoteric tradition. Even more specifically, what concerns us in this episode is the world of magical literature. By this I am not necessarily excluding spoken charms and spells. Actually, it's quite the opposite. In this context, I'm talking about magic that was spread via literary transmission. You know, in books and whatnot. But as you probably know, the first written magic in Scandinavia did not actually come from books. So, since written magic, in some form or fashion, concerns us here, 
I think it makes sense to at least address that a little bit. Arguably, literary magic in Scandinavia begins with runic writing. Runes were a writing system that existed under conditions quite different from the writing that you and I are most familiar with. The purpose of runic writing was not to write big volumes of text, but record laconic messages into charismatic objects such as jewelry and imposing stone monuments. It didn't actually serve any obviously practical function in Nordic Iron Age society, as we might understand it today. That's not to say that all runic inscriptions don't serve a practical purpose, because that's simply not true. But yeah, rune magic. Let's address the elephant in the room, shall we? Just by me saying these words, rune magic, some listeners will say, hell yes, and others will cringe. To both I say, rightfully so, because this is a fascinating but dicey topic. Let's start off by saying, and I hope that this is clear to most people, that rune magic is an overhyped and misunderstood subject, first and foremost. So while I am not going to provide a deep dive into runic sorcery in this episode, there's enough of a topical overlap between grimoire magic and certain runic charms of the Middle Ages, in ways that may or may not surprise you. From the Roman Iron Age to the Viking era, the relationship between magic and the written word was probably somewhat fluid. The culture was based strictly around the spoken word. You have to imagine a society where legal proceedings and business and politics and any sort of formality whatsoever came in the form of verbal exchange. These were societies that didn't attach any formality to the written word, but to eyewitness testimonies, sworn oaths, mnemonic devices, recollection, and formulaic repetition. We could probably say that the concept of the written word was attractive and compelling as a novelty, a recording strategy, or as a secretive or esoteric signifier of elite know-how. But a bureaucratic and endemically used communication tool like we use it today, it was not. This is not easy for us to understand, because we have this preconception that society hinges on literacy to function properly, which Iron Age Scandinavians uh, did perfectly well. We also have this idea that if a culture has a script, then they will invent some use for it, comparable to how we use it. These people were familiar with cultures that were literate on a much wider scale, but clearly this did not translate into a full-fledged scribal culture in the north. And of course, we must remember that not everybody in Greece or Rome or Anglo-Saxon England knew how to read or write either. But we're going to see that when uh, Latin writing finally made its way to Scandinavia, that something very interesting happened with the runic alphabet. When it comes to runes, runologists sometimes refer to runic literacy as runacy. For the Viking Age, we don't really know whether or not the average Joe um, was able to read or write runes. Runestones are not necessarily the best indicators either, because the function of a runestone wasn't necessarily just to read. The term rune can also mean secret or mystery in the old Germanic languages, and that's probably how it was perceived for many in these cultures. Most certainly there was an element of secrecy associated with it, um, but one that could be said to be extroverted and conspicuous, almost flaunting itself. Because in a society that does not rely on the written word, learning to read in itself is a completely foreign concept to most people, and not something that most people have the tools to really grasp. If indeed runic writing was the faculty of the upper classes, a runestone is a way to signify access to a technology that others didn't have. Therefore the contents of a runic object or a monument may be secondary to the fact that it is 
a runic object or monument. And the idea that those who are able to fossilize the written word in a way that it can be left and forgotten and then reactivated at a later point by somebody literate, uh, completely disattached to the original context, you know, can go there and read it again, you know, this gets a completely different ring to it in a society that is completely based on commemoration and recollection and constant, you know, repetition, as I said, of oral culture. Most runestones don't even contain significant information that the bystander can't do without, especially in the early runic period, that is the Roman Iron Age, Migration Period, and so on, while the archetypical Viking Age runestone is uh, so-and-so raised this stone for their relative, so-and-so, or uh, so-and-so raised this stone in memory of this guy who died in Denmark, or something like that. Runic competency, so-called runacy, probably varied immensely with time and place as well. A lot more people are reading runes in 11th century Sweden than they are in 3rd century Denmark, for instance. In Sweden, you have roughly 1,750 runestones altogether. Over a thousand of these were raised in the 11th century. So you might think that sounds late, but you'd be surprised. In Norway, it's kind of the opposite, because you have about 60 runestones altogether, and most of them are from the Roman Iron Age or migration periods. And it's more runestones than Denmark and Sweden were raising at that time. Now, largely from the Viking era, Denmark has about 200 runestones. Iceland, it might surprise you, has no runestones whatsoever there can be lots of reasons for these discrepancies. It could be both local culture or that certain local geographies just lend themselves well to runestones because they have well-traveled roads instead of a population that largely travels by boat because they live in an archipelago or fjord landscape where most of the roads are really just kind of non-existent. Little paths between hamlets. Like in Norway, you have a couple of examples of... Uh, runic mountains, or that is to say, cliffs with runic inscriptions on them that uh, face waterways where people would be going past a lot. We can perhaps imagine a party of travelers where maybe one runatic among them was able to interpret the inscription for his companions and thereby showcase his esoteric and arcane savviness. Other factors could be access to suitable stone. Considering the geology of Denmark, it's surprising that they have as many as 200 stones in the first place. And it's possible that many of them are associated with the centralization efforts of Harold Bluetooth. Fashion could be one factor. At some point, it might even have been a legal asset. You know, marking a permanent border between two political areas or properties. Because we have outspoken examples of this from the end of the Viking Age. Either way, to state the obvious, to have runestones, you need local motivation to commission and have them raised. Many runestones were placed in high-traffic areas, so maybe you won't raise runestones if you're in an area where people won't give a shit. Or in areas that are politically stable, and where there's no question about who is the ruling dynasty, there might be less of a need to self-assert with that sort of a monument. But it's hard to talk about this stuff on a general level, because it, it just doesn't suit every context. You know, there are too many factors to consider, including the content of the runestones themselves. But on the topic of runic magic, most of the runestones would seem to uh, contain uh, messages that are, let's say, less than sorcerous. The question is, was this distinction made in its original cultural context? Sometimes that distinction might be clear and others not so much. And we have to remember that these were, you know, for lack of a better term, living kind of in a magically imbued universe where magic is kind of just a fact of nature. But that 
argument can be overplayed, right? Where's the inherent magic of an inscription that says, I, Eric, have learned to write? Well, yes, I do think that there is a subtle case to be made there, but bear with me. There are many runic inscriptions that we simply don't understand, either because of deliberate obfuscation, uh, or because they are gibberish, or because they refer to a symbolic universe that we simply don't have the means of understanding. So assuming that everybody's following what we're saying here when we're talking about magic, I'm not going to get into any terminological discussion where I try to conjure up some working definition and split hairs in this or that direction. Let's just dumb that down for now. Did they perform anything that looks like modern runic magic as you might read about it in your New Age bookstore or um, find in a guide on YouTube or somewhere else on the internet? The answer to that will very often be most certainly not. Take uh, runic ligatures, for instance, so-called bind runes. In reality, they're often quite different from uh, modern bind rune practices that are ultimately derived from the sigil magic of chaos magicians and Austin Osman Spear, though in their form they might take quite a bit from uh, Icelandic grimoires, the so-called Galdrabökir, which actually derives from continental Solomonic magic, uh, adjacent to what we're talking about later in this episode. But again, not without a decent local infusion by any means, both in terms of actual, say, Icelandic folklore, but also kind of a synthetic attempt at marrying early modern antiquarianist revivals with the occult tradition of the continent, which goes back way into antiquity. Anyway, I have a pretty comprehensive article about the connection between the Icelandic magical staves and the continental goetic uh, demonological tradition. I'm quite chuffed with the title, I call it Clubbing Solomon's Seal, where I kind of dispel this notion that the Galdrastavir are completely an indigenous Icelandic Norse pagan phenomenon, which they aren't, but they're interesting as what they are, you know, as an uh, acculturation of uh, indigenous Nordic uh, concepts and ideas and uh, continental magic. Anyway, all of that stuff you can read on BruteNorse.com. I'll provide a link in the show notes below. Now, just to be a little laconic about rune magic. Did they use runes to write magical charms or to record magical expressions? Um, yeah, most definitely they did, and we have plenty of examples of it. Do we understand what these magical inscriptions mean? Do we always know if they are magical inscriptions or not? And how can we really tell the difference? Well, sometimes it's blatantly obvious, like if it's a lead charm appealing to some subterranean or higher power uh, to absolve somebody of disease, I think it's fair to say that this is a magical inscription, no? And we have quite a few of these, uh, not all of them have even been formally published yet. As for many other seemingly magical inscriptions, we, yeah, sometimes we understand what they say, sometimes we don't. There are those who have really good, solid, compelling interpretations, and there are people who should just uh, knock it off altogether and spare us the suffering of entertaining their unverified personal gnosis. There are cases where there's a lot to say about a specific runic inscription, and there are other cases where we just don't know. There's a lot of conjecture, though, and a lot of people who have a whole lot to say, which is probably why this topic makes so many runologists cringe, and just kind of refuse to acknowledge runic magic altogether because of, I don't know, the connotations. You have these magical maximalists making completely unwarranted claims. I think the reasoning is that they don't want to feed into the misconceptions, and as a result, the misconceptions 
are allowed to go unaddressed. Another thing is that uh, the history of magical thought is a relatively recent academic discipline, and it's not necessarily a research topic that all runologists are interested in. Still, there is a lot of material there that runologists are well aware of, and do take some degree of interest in. So if you want to have a serious discussion with a runologist about this, there's kind of a vetting process involved where we have to approach them a certain way. Uh, I don't know. It's one of those situations. If you have to ask, maybe you just don't. No, I don't want to say that. Maybe you should just read a few more articles or you're not reading the right books or something. Just putting it out there that if you're really interested in runes, maybe you should uh, purchase your runic literature from an uh, academic publisher, not the joint that sells incense and exotic rocks mined by slaves in some third world country. There are a lot of misunderstandings about runes that are so fundamental that it's difficult to know how to really attack it. Even the names of individual runes, which people read so much meaning into, wasn't necessarily always a stable thing. First of all, many of the names of the individual runes changed over time, and might not even have had just one name across the entire Germanic-speaking area. Few people realize that the names of the runes of the Elder Futhark are linguistically reconstructed, for example, and whether or not a rune had a certain name in, say, the 3rd century is a matter of speculation. In fact, there are runologists who argue that many of the conventional rune names that we operate with today are in fact not the original historical names at all, but rather later runological impositions. Take the rune sometimes referred to as Elhaz or Algij, for example, which probably did not originally have that name at all. In Old Norse and the Younger Futark, it is attested as Madr, meaning man, and when the same rune form is upside down, it has a different sound value, and the name Ij, meaning yew tree, with which rune points up and which points down, isn't entirely consistent. There's a lot of internal and local variation in all of the runic alphabets. So every time you see a depiction of a 24 or 16 row Futark, you have to remember that there are literally dozens of alternative forms of these runes. And that the same rune in West Norway, Bavaria, Denmark, or Frisia could just as well represent the same sound value, but have four different names. Thing is, we just don't know. Anyway, there's a lot of wooey shit going on with that that are at best modern esoteric anachronisms or straight up delusions at worst. This is what pisses me off the most with all of this rune magic nonsense, much of which is barely even a hundred years old, and that is speaking charitably. That there is no imposter syndrome where there should be, and people are talking as if their occult bookstore-derived systems are applicable to the spiritual lives of Germanic peoples in the 4th century AD. So a common idea is this notion that rune casting is a authentic pre-Christian uh, divination practice. Norse people did divine the future by drawing lots. I don't think there's any credible evidence, though, that they used runes to do it. And the basic nugget of wisdom here is that people can and will develop divination systems out of any system of chance. This has especially tended to be the case with games historically. You can do it with cards, dice, those hand-cranked lottery machines, or Russian roulette. The association between games, fate, and divination seems to apply to the Norse context as well. You can ask the eminent Lezhek Gardewa about that if you ever see him. I'm sure he would have a few interesting things to say. But on this exhilarating topic of runes and magic, I have to admit that it does give me a fair amount of cognitive dissonance. Because I uh, approach this topic both as a scholar in my field and as somewhat of an occultozoid nincompoop, to paraphrase Stephen Flowers. You know, I consider myself pretty hip with the counterculture. And combining these two, uh, it really brings out my archivist tendencies. You know, I like to track the epistemic development of these things. Besides that, 
What's more scandi-futuristic than developing new and fresh divination systems based on retrospective material like runes? I should find that cool as shit, right? You know, and on a level I think I do. I think that's just the general ignorance and the casualness of it all that pisses me off. The people use this as a simple tool and never actually bother to educate themselves about how runes actually work. So it comes across to me as false sincerity, where they're pretending to be interested in it, but they're constantly pissing all over it, basically. And maybe even more a matter of what runes represent in the contemporary underground than what runes actually are. And just that, you know, triggers some sort of Baudrillardian reflex in me, right? What are runes, really? <laughs> are they, Are they as they are being used and presented or uh, mimicked? In contemporary culture or are they this uh, antiquarian relic right you know aren't, aren't they both kind of it would be a betrayal to scandi futurism to say otherwise i just wish the standards were higher isn't that basically just every complaint i have on brute norse though me complaining that things aren't living up to my insane standard of measurement but i mean consider my background i think uh, my supervisor once told me that uh, if you're going to study Old Norse religion on an academic level and you don't know Old Norse and not at least one Scandinavian language, contemporary, then you don't really have any business poking around in that shit. Because those are the tools, right? They are the, the hammer and the chisel and the saw in the toolbox. I mean, it's harshly put. I don't think that it's necessary for everybody to know that stuff, even if they're interested in the topic. That would be a suicidal level of gatekeeping, probably. But I think if you're writing like a revolutionary treatise on runic magic, and you don't know any Norwegian, Swedish, Danish, or Icelandic, and no Old Norse, more importantly, you're at such a massive fucking disadvantage in every aspect. And yeah, frankly, lacking those skills, I think that most people should, under no circumstance, be writing books about those topics. Because clearly, you're only relying on secondary sources, and you don't have the skills to verify or analyze your sources. I mean, there are always exceptions to this. There are people who do tremendous work in spite of this, but generally speaking, a bit of a red flag. Because uh, translations are partial. Choices are made in that process. And there are terms in Old Norse that do not translate perfectly into English that mean different things and may mean specific things in very specific contexts. Because you see these uh, people doing like deep dive, like schizo analyses of, I don't know, the uh, Runatalsfotter section of Hovamol and going by it on some fucking public domain translation of the Hovamol that you found online somewhere, perhaps from the late 1800s where the translator resorts to euphemisms every time he encounters some section of a poem that he finds offensive to his uh, Victorian sentiments, like fucking troll maidens pissing in a divinity's mouth, which happens in Lokasena, for instance. And they force the poem to have end rhymes so that the English-speaking audiences will understand that it's a fucking poem or some shit. You know, maybe you shouldn't be exactly extrapolating on it, taking your imagination and running with something that maybe the original doesn't even say. I mean, the bottom line is that if somebody puts an Eddic poem in the original Old Norse in front of you and you have no fucking idea what any of it says, 
You're not the guy who should be writing that fucking book, okay? Especially not if you're guiding other people onto some sort of spiritual path or whatever. You're not, like, specially attuned to this shit in, in a way that other people can't access. No, you're a quack. That's what you are. If you want to extrapolate on it artistically, creatively, philosophically, sure, yeah. I mean, be my guest. But you're not even remotely near a position where you can speak on behalf of the people who wrote this stuff. Especially not for a task where you're guiding other people into some kind of esoteric philosophical track. Purporting to carry on where the ancestors left off. That's like somebody uh, schooling you on how to repair a vending machine on the grounds that they drink a lot of soda, right? It's gonna be gobbledygook in and it's gonna be gobbledygook out. Well, that's not to say that the last chapter on runic magic has been written yet. You know, there's a lot of st overlooked stuff out there and a lot of compelling shit that um, hasn't been given fair attention. I don't mean to be pointing any fingers. I'm just uh, getting you guys up to speed so you don't get conned by others or more importantly, yourself. So ultimately, unless you're approaching this with a very strong academic grounding, any meaning read into these says more about the influence of modern esotericism than it says about its historical topic. But that's fine, you just have to be aware of where one ends and the other begins. This is one of those topics where you have to be comfortable with ambiguity. I think the silver lining to this is that if you can get to know your sources, you can actually make stuff that is compelling to thinking people. Something that is actually innovative. Stuff that breaks the mold and isn't just more of the same old. So while I may seem crass, I'm doing this with the express purpose of raising you to excellency. Just consider that. Anyway, the end of the saga is that uh, you'll be wise to maintain a kind of skeptical approach to whether or not runes were a so-called magical script at the very least. But um, let's just cool it with reductionism, okay? You know, to people who didn't read, to say it for the umpteenth time, runes must have had a kind of secretive allure to them. And they were definitely used as a medium by which some sorcerer's intent was often expressed, though that is far from explicit most of the time. Some runestones contain cleverly devised ciphers for rune masters to unravel, or they might express dire threats against those who might be foolish enough to tamper with them. Take, for example, the Björkitorp runestone, an Elder Futhark inscription in Proto-Norse that is really a curse warning anybody who would be dumb enough to mess with it. Okay, I'm gonna read it now. Baleful prophecy. A run of bright runes I commit here. Mighty runes. Protectionless because of their perversion. An insidious death to he who breaks this. So, thing is, we don't really know what uh, this uh, runic monument represents. Some have suggested that it was a sacred site. Some say it might have been a political border. So it's kind of uh, it's telling people to, to back off and not fuck with uh, the border stones. Some people think it could have been a burial marker, though no grave has been identified on the site. It could have been a kenotaph. But either way, it's using language consistent with kind of a magical charm or petition. So it basically says whoever messes with it uh, is a pervert that will die an excruciating death. So, I mean, it's a runic charm by virtue of being, I don't know, uh, a magical inscription. But it's more like a declaration, isn't it? Written in runes. Could have been written in Greek or in Latin letters. Um, happens to be written in runes. Because that is the writing system that they had access to in, in 7th century Scandinavia. And if that sounds lame, that is just because we approach this as members of a culture who see reading and writing as completely pedestrian. 
as nothing special. I said I didn't want to make this episode about pre-Christian magic, but here we go. I feel like I should add some more, and uh, interesting examples, um, you know, just for the sake of science. So a pretty good example would be uh, the Reba skull fragment from Denmark, and uh, I'm just going to quote uh, Tarius Burklan, a Norwegian runologist on this one. In 1973, a piece of human skull with runes on it was found during excavations. Archaeologists date the find to 720. The skull was already old when the runes were carved in it, so we assume that the party concerned was no longer alive at the time. Or, as the Danish runologist Erik Molke expressed it, it was an old skull the writer availed himself of, not the skull of someone just knocked on the head for the purpose. A small hole about 7 or 5 millimeters in diameter was drilled in the skull fragment. It has been suggested that the object was used as a sort of amulet to be worn around the neck on a cord passed through a hole. However, there is no sign of wear around the sides of the hole, and that has been taken as an indication that the skull fragment was never hung on a cord. The inscription runs from left to right. And then he gives a transliteration of the inscription, which seems to appeal to Olver og Odin og Hotir. So, Wolf, Odin, and High Tyr. Tyr being either the god Tyr or, you know, a more general noun meaning deity. The rest of the inscription is a bit ambiguous, but um, it appears to be a charm or prayer, possibly uh, against migraines or some kind of head injury, which is basically conjecture based on uh, the fact that it's written on a skull fragment, apparently caused by the negative attention or influence of a dwarf. So here we see an example of a very common belief, that is the idea that chthonic subterranean entities are often the cause of injuries or diseases in human beings or animals. Now let's add some comparative material from Solberga on Öland in Sweden, where they found uh, two copper amulets put down together, apparently as some kind of uh, votive deposit, in the post hole of a building, reading Christer och Sankta Maria Bjargithej Olov Bjarg umbaugaj auk ejumargaj fronthej in argi jotun olov och thrimjandi thurs altit. Part 2 reads Thursek fo hin thrihovda hin mera moldiga fron manskuno han atseidi. To paraphrase one scholar's interpretation Christ and Mary save you, Olov. Help with rings and healing signs, always away from you, the perverted Jotun, Olov, and the furious Thurs. The free-headed and earthly Thurs I take away from the man's woman. I must do this with Seder. So, a Thurs, Thurs, is kind of a goblin, ogre, um, chthonic entity in Old Norse and Scandinavian folklore, a modern Scandinavian Tus. Uh, the wording is reminiscent of curses spoken in Eddic uh, poetry, such as Skirnismol including the motif of the three-headed troll, that is also Argir, that is uh, perverse, lewd, unmanly, denoting a sort of unnatural and a harmful character. And just generally speaking, such creatures are known both in pre-Christian and modern Scandinavian folklore uh, to be um, particularly harmful to women, because they fall in love with them, desire them, lust after them, and um, this is not good, as you can imagine. It's actually quite harmful. Then, of course, there's the apparent reference to the practice of Seder and a petition to Christ and St. Mary. So we got quite a hodgepodge of different motifs and beliefs and practices here. There is a tradition of runic amulets in some form or fashion throughout the history of the runic alphabet. 
but more abundantly towards the end of the Viking Age and beyond. So here we're back on the topic of how the concentration of runic inscriptions changes with time and place. I've already addressed the discrepancy in number of monuments uh, throughout Scandinavia that have runes on them. So to backtrack a little bit, in 11th century Sweden, when we suddenly have a large influx of runestones, that could possibly be an indication of a greater extent of runic literacy compared to previous times and places. And if there was a larger degree of runic literacy in the 11th century than previous eras, uh, then it's, you know, it's not far-fetched to assume that this is because of an increased uh, level of contact with uh, Latin writing from the continent. And that would make sense, because many of these Swedish runestones from the 11th century and onwards are Christian. They refer to Christian concepts, and they have Christian imagery. So they might well be the result of an increased um, awareness of the purpose of writing. In a society that has adopted a book religion, even though most people cannot read those books themselves, they at least have ritual specialists, I am of course talking about Christian clergy, who are in the possession of books and are able to read them. So this creates a whole new frame of reference for writing itself. In Scandinavian society at the time, uh, books and writing and reading is becoming slowly more normalized in a way. What happened was that the adoption of Christianity in the 11th century also necessitated familiarity with the written word, something that lent itself perfectly well to the top-heavy centralization and Europeanization of medieval Scandinavian kingdoms. As Norse society began to increasingly rely on the written word for administrative, legal, and theological purposes, it also developed a parallel sort of literacy, where those who had access to education were taught to read and write Latin script, and those who lacked that opened their eyes to the possibilities of their own vernacular script, the runes, and began using runes on an unprecedented scale. Let's just take into account the historical development of the runic alphabet, the so-called futhark, and, you know, by extension, all its variants. Generally speaking, the Elder Futhark originally contained some 24 letters. I say roughly because some of these letters are not actually attested in many areas where the runes were used. Around the 8th century, the 24-letter Futhark was reduced to 16 letters for reasons that are not entirely clear. Some have argued that this might have been a deliberate reform by a specific milieu of gatekeepers with defining power over runic writing in Scandinavia, which seems to imply that there was a specific class in society that had some kind of monopoly, even, on the runes. The runic reform of the 8th century certainly gives the impression of being a deliberate, consensus-based decision. Either way, 16 runes are fewer letters than there are distinct phonemes, that is, vowels and consonants, in the Old Norse language. So in the Viking Age, runes were simply not an effective way to express the language or encourage reading comprehension. They stuck with various versions of the younger Futark throughout the Viking Age until the Middle Ages, when the number of letters in the Futark increased so that each phoneme once again had a corresponding rune, enabling people to actually write as it was supposed to be pronounced. Nevertheless, the true test of the commoner's runacy lies in whether or not it was used for everyday purposes or served some sort of practical function. Looking at this material, it becomes abundantly clear that the peak of runic literacy was not the Viking Age, but the Middle Ages. So Norse culture at this point has for a while been moving away from a more elite runic phenomenon towards a more democratized notion of literacy. And as we progress, the runic inscription per excellence is no longer hewn into stones, but found on sticks of wood, left in garbage piles, or carved into the walls of churches. The medium changes, and so does its message and methodology. The runes basically enter a new era, and they begin to manifest in very interesting ways. 
For example, in the medieval period, we find encrypted inscriptions in various runic ciphers. This was done both to conceal information and for entertainment, or as kind of a, you know, like a puzzle. While this is no specifically medieval innovation by any means, it does reflect a society where an extra level of encryption was deemed necessary, where being able to carve and interpret runes was not necessarily that impressive anymore. We have many inscriptions that are simply Futhark inscriptions, that is to say, a reckoning of the runic alphabet, sometimes not in the correct order. We have to ask ourselves if some of these are not the work of children practicing their first Futhark. It may seem counterintuitive that Norse culture should undergo a runic revolution as a result of Latin writing, but that's how it went. Either way, the new Latin alphabet and the indigenous runic alphabet served separate and complementary functions in Scandinavian society. Runes are practical in the sense that they're perfect for carving into hard surfaces with a knife, for example. That's just not really viable with the Latin scripts that they were using. So there's this diffusion, right, between Latin script, which is for the learned classes of society, of the courts and the clergy, and uh, literary production, and runes become the commoner's writing system, at least in urban centers. Don't misunderstand me when I say this. There is evidence to suggest some capacity of practical runacy in the Viking Age in certain strata of society, but my point is that this became a whole lot more prevalent in the Middle Ages, and a whole lot more useful. Now, common folk in towns began carving personal letters, receipts, shopping lists, jokes, riddles, and crude graffiti into wooden objects. They began carving their names on the bottom of their belongings on a much wider scale, since they now lived in a society where you could expect people to actually understand what you were carving. As I said, in Norway there are only about 60 runestones altogether, but there are over 600 runic inscriptions from the medieval town of Bergen alone, yielding an extremely high variety of inscriptions in terms of form and content. And that's pretty much just from one city block that was excavated. Can you even imagine that in the 13th century in Bergen, some dandy was walking around the wharf wearing the words of Ovid, Amor vincit omnia, love conquers all, embroidered in silk on his shoes in runes. We have letters from lovers and customer complaints. We have Latin prayers carved alongside runic transcriptions, allowing commoners who did not speak or read Latin to phonetically read Latin prayers, like a sort of prayer machine. Many of the runic inscriptions feature vulgar and crude language, often in the form of sexual defamation and accusations of buggery. This was a relatively safe way to slander somebody, considering that Norwegian law at the time considered physical violence and even murder a completely justifiable response to insults and defamation especially those that called a man's masculinity into question, or made lewd and improper insinuations about women. Some inscriptions are playful, like Sets knider og råd runar, ris upp og fisvid. That is, sit down and interpret the runes, rise up and fart. Iceland and Scandinavia may have been on the geographical margins of Europe, but we were fully connected to the flow of information being passed through the monastic system. Treatises on astrology, astronomy, philosophy, mathematics, and medicine were copied and translated into Old Norse. Just as medieval Scandinavia is infused by an enormous influx of continental literature, we also start seeing some of the first continental magical charms entering the runic corpus. We must also remember that the people of Bergen lived in the biggest trading hub of the Norwegian realm. Germans and Englishmen had a constant presence there, and probably passed magical charms over to the locals. In later shipping manifests, it even seems that Norwegians in some cases were ordering obscure magical ingredients via the Hanseatic trade routes. 
What is interesting is that some pagan motifs also survived into medieval magic, where it got infused with continental demonology, which is not really that shocking if you think about it. Pagan deities, in the Catholic mind, was just a roundabout way of saying pagan devil. Take, for instance, this charm, written on a runestick in Bergen in the late 14th century, where the once proud and mighty pagan deity, Odin, has been reduced to a sort of demonological helper who can be forced by use of Christian invocations to provide occult insights, in this case, revealing the identity of a thief. I exhort you, Odin, with heathendom, greatest of fiends, assent to this, tell me the name of the man who stole, for Christendom, tell me now your misdeed. One I revile, the second I revile, tell me, Odin, now is conjured up, and lots of devilish messengers with all heathendom. Now you shall get for me the name of he who stole. Amen. It is also in this period that the first Sator squares occur in Scandinavia. These are magical palindromes consisting of a set formula of words forming a square. Again, because this is Scandinavia, they are written in runes, though the contents derive from the ancient Mediterranean. The word Abracadabra starts popping up, indeed, in runic inscriptions, and often in some corrupted vernacular form, such as in the following inscription on a lead crucifix from Geular, Norway. Agala, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. May this, the cross, be over us from all evil. Amen. Alpha Lord, Abracalera, Abraca, Abraca, Abra. Peace be with us, from all evil. Amen. Runes continued to be in use in tiny pockets of Scandinavia up until the early modern period. But generally speaking, common runacy peaked in the 14th century before it kind of drifted off into obscurity. And there are reasons for this that uh, we can't really get into. Uh, the 14th century was just very cataclysmic uh, for the Norwegian realm, generally speaking, with a big population collapse because of the Black Death and all of the developments that came as a result. What's important is that the phrasing of many of the above charms are recognizably close to what you might find in a Renaissance or early modern grimoire. Evidently, Norse people were subjected to continental magical charms and practices since at least the 12th century at the dawn of medieval literature, even though the exact sources for this may be evasive. By that I mean that it's not immediately clear how the commoners in, say, medieval Bergen were taught continental magical charms. It's not necessarily a smoking gun, though we can imagine many different scenarios where such exchanges might have happened. This might have had an influence on later developments of magic in Scandinavia, but we have to realize that Scandinavian grimoires did not come straight out of this tradition. Rather, in the late and post-medieval period, we started importing grimoires and translating them into the local languages, either completely or fragmentarily with lots of local amendments. Obviously, some motifs entered the vernacular magical repertoire somewhat separated from their sources and blended together with distinctly local elements. The most famous examples of Nordic acculturation together with written continental magic being the magical staves of the early modern Icelandic Galdraböckir, where continental magical charms were basically plagiarized, at least in visual form, and inserted into a vernacular and indigenous context. Icelanders have always been very good at taking something and making it their own. So they took the visual expression and ideas of Solomonic magic and constructed a sort of Nordic adaption to it. That is kind of just, you know, its own thing. Such talismanic staves never really caught on in mainland Scandinavia, so it's sort of a distinctly Icelandic innovation. So now the age of rune sticks and rune-inscribed lead amulets is behind us, and we have entered the age of paper manuscripts and grimoires. Though it should be said that in some areas, runes continue to be used up until our age. 
depending on when you consider our age to start. But overall, in the late medieval period, runes start to come and go, and when they come, it is mostly due to antiquarian interest and revivals. And here, I obviously cannot go without mentioning the Swedish Gothicists, such as Johannes Bureus, who merged his runological and antiquarian fascinations with his interest in Rosicrucianism and alchemy to create a sort of runic Kabbalah. This is, of course, massively relevant to the development of modern forms of runic esotericism. Speaking of personal bugbears on the topic of rune magic, I mean, let's add a general lack of awareness of its own historical influences to the pile. I know that many people feel like the less said about Guido von Liszt, the better, but at least pour one out for the Swedish megalogothicists, and spare a thought for your man Johannes Boreas, you rune-casting son of a bitch. The oldest proper grimoire in Norway is a book from Vinje in Telemark, a county that in its heyday was renowned as a place where cartographers refused to set foot, and where clergy was sometimes hunted for sport, if some accounts are to be believed. And mark my words, I really want to go down that tangent, but the rabbit hole is too deep and I have to try to stay on topic. Anyway, the oldest and probably most famous of the Norwegian grimoires is the grimoire from Vinje, simply called the Vinje book. Though, book? It's not really that big, it's more like a pamphlet. No bigger than a credit card, found in perfect condition under the floorboards of Vinje Stave Church in 1796. The paper was made either in France or Luxembourg between 1477 and 1486, and the contents were written probably no later than the 1520s and contained no traces of the local dialect. Rather, it is written in the sort of Norwegified Danish you can expect from the hand of a clerk or priest living in the Dano-Norwegian kingdom at this time. It is also noteworthy that this is a grimoire from the Catholic period with no awareness of the Reformation. Otherwise, grimoires in Scandinavia more usually are distinctly a kind of post-reformation phenomenon. We can categorize the grimoires roughly into Dano-Norwegian and Swedish substrata, even though there are many overlaps between them. They go by names such as the 6th and 7th books of Moses, or the art book of Cyprianus, often simply referred to as Cyprianus, after the eponymous Cyprian of Antioch, a 4th century Christian saint and magician, <clears throat> allegedly. Anyway, the attribution of these grimoires to the above are really a matter of folklore and often deliberate lies on account of their authors. As you might have guessed, in a world where the Bible is believed to hold great power, there's this notion floating around that there are sections of the Bible or other pieces of Christian wisdom that only initiated cunning people have access to, that are kept away from the public eye. Hold on to these biblical allegations because we'll be returning to them pretty soon. With witchcraft, there's always this discrepancy between public imagination and actuality. We have to somehow separate the witch of legend from the actual practitioner, and also the spellbook of legend from the actual manuscript. The black book of legend is a rather numinous artifact, often described as a book with black pages written in red ink, or is it perhaps something else? Sometimes the pages themselves are supposed to have been made of iron, and once you have the book, it is impossible to get rid of. Other times it is oppositely said that the owner must get rid of it in order not to be dragged into hell when they die. In reality though, the actual black books do not fit this description whatsoever, but make up a very compelling body of manuscripts nevertheless, and they do often make an effort to live up to their reputation. It is not uncommon for these so-called black books to make boastful claims about their alleged provenance. Some claim to be handwritten copies or translations of originals that were printed either domestically or abroad. Some of them are even written in block letters imitating printed typesets. In reality, however, 
no printed grimoire survives in Scandinavia, and it's unlikely that they ever even existed. This goes to show the perceived authority of the printed word at this time. Another thing is that no two grimoires are really the same. It is clear that some of our grimoires have common sources because they contain variants of some of the same spells, but contents are never quite exactly the same. Authors added material from different sources, some of this was other grimoires, but many of the sources were probably vernacular, just know-how that was passed by word of mouth. We have to remember that besides the grimoires, there was also an entire overlapping tradition of magic being passed around on an entirely oral basis and this is not necessarily that attainable to us. Even though folklorists and antiquarians of the 19th century would record many examples that seem perfectly adjacent to the stuff that we might find in the black books, naturally we have to assume that people weren't necessarily willing to divulge everything they knew about this sort of stuff. Either because the practice itself was morally ambiguous or otherwise stigmatized, and often stigmatized just on account of being old stuff. The Age of Enlightenment and then the Industrial Revolution completely changed the way that we perceive these things. It isolated man from our ancestors and matched its faith in modern innovation and elevated sense of judgment with a negativity and even shame attached to the traditions of the near past. In Norway this is often called the Storhamshifte, or the great shapeshift of Norwegian peasant society. And here comes a problem that is sort of inherent to uh, anthropology and folklore studies. Its very existence is kind of playing the undertaker to the demise of traditional pre-industrial society, at least the parts of the discipline at this time which was concerned with antiquarian layovers. You know, recording stuff before it's gone forever. And so, really interviewing people about this sort of stuff can carry with it the sort of implication that they are somehow backwards, or superstitious, or somehow suffer from some kind of deficiency of modernity. Case in point, some such folk beliefs were still kind of around when my grandma was a girl. Her brother was known to keep track of folk auguries that determined future weather, for instance, but whenever I have asked her, she has always shrugged it off as something that people don't speak about and changed the subject. And that is basically just kind of farmer's almanac sort of stuff, so when that's the bar, you can imagine what else people didn't want to talk about. Odd Nurlan said that he was facing these issues when he was collecting information about traditional brewing techniques, and I've even heard similar stories from maritime conservation societies, that people who grew up with these traditions are embarrassed of them. I'm not even talking about superstitions, I'm talking about the unforgivable crime of being unmodern. Another common thing is that people would admit to kind of trivial knowledge about this or that practice, but deny that this was ever done in their lifetime. This is something that the old people would talk about, or some conveniently dead person used to do. Usually, we've just had to take their word for it, but sometimes it turns out that these people probably know a little bit more than they're willing to let on. Exceptions can be stuff that is seen as relatively harmless. Things that are associated with childhood activities, for instance. People might be uninclined to talk about famine foods because that implies that they were poor, maybe, but they can casually talk about the same plants as, you know, sort of stuff that you would snack on as a child. Or things that are clearly divination, but are framed in a sort of way that, nah, this is just what we did when we were little girls. Like sleeping with a certain flower under your pillow to divine your future husband. You probably won't find a lot of people interested in admitting to using sorcery or even knowing about techniques to manipulate your love interest which was achievable by, for instance, carving their name into an apple and feeding it to them, or ejaculating in their drink. Like, put yourself in their shoes. Is this something you would want, on the record, tied to your name? To put it out there that uh, jerking off in your date's beverage is a valid way to bag a wife? 
I mean, even in its cultural context, getting caught doing this is like pretty much the last thing you'll do before you're murdered in an honor killing. So if that were me, and I'm not saying it is, I would fucking keep my mouth shut. So again, another classic example of uh, perpetually human things, this double standard, and the difference between public and private. That people do things outside of church sanction, let's say. It doesn't have to be that they consider this to be pagan, per se, or that they think that by doing this, I am not a good Christian. But more like, how to put it, there's many ways to skin a cat. And if the church cannot offer solutions to issues that you're having in life, it kind of becomes a question of supply and demand, okay? And you might be excused for turning to things with more immediate solutions. Bear in mind that Protestant countries, where historically grimoires flourished, don't operate with saints who would usually be appealed to in Catholicism, for example, to petition God on your behalf. In Christian cultures, we tend to think of religion as something we believe rather than something we do, but Catholicism is much more a religion of doing than Protestantism is, which is highly a religion of faith, or so it would seem. So by kind of forfeiting the do aspect in Protestantism, I think this opens up for a whole new vista of occult ideas and opens the floodgates for subversive practices that are not necessarily seen to be completely negating church teaching, but is definitely not sanctioned. Catholicism had and still has a ton of venues for that sort of stuff, but the only way that Protestantism has ever been able to deal with it is by inventing new forms of Protestantism. Ironically, this is kind of one of the redeeming factors of Protestantism, to me at least, because it's very easy for the Catholic Church to monopolize folk religion, even if it doesn't really work all the time, because there's a saint for everything. In Protestantism, they, it seems that they either dig in their heels and become more Puritan about everything, where the cult of saints is tantamount to paganism, basically. Or, as there are a million cases of, they'll develop yet another Protestant offshoot with uh, blackjack and hookers and faith healing. And I will not say that this is the case everywhere, but I feel like in Scandinavia, this worked to the benefit of the indigenous folklore in strange ways. Not always all the time, of course. I'm thinking then about religious revivals where there were burning fiddles and whatnot because fiddles, of course, are the devil's instruments. And in the folklore, usually associated with Catholic forces. Even today, many Norwegian folk musicians have a sort of mystic and folk-religious approach to Christianity, I've noticed. But I've met fiddlers who even go beyond and express a certain dismay with the attempt at marrying fiddle music with Christianity, intimate concerts in medieval churches and whatnot, given that the church never had anything good to say about the fiddler in the first place and given that the fiddler was always associated with the precarious supernatural margins. So musicality, of course, has nothing to do with written magic, but what I'm trying to say here is that uh, Protestantism has a way of uh, encouraging Faustian figures, seemingly just by way of its internal contradictions. And otherwise, when I'm talking about the self-goals of the Norwegian church, I'm not just talking about how it inadvertently fortified folk religiosity by providing venues of interaction with unseen, less-than-holy things. I'm talking about the paganization of Catholicism. Post-Reformation Scandinavia was entirely de-Catholicized. The images of saints were thrown out of the churches, and what happened? What do you do when you can no longer pray to St. Olaf to find your lost fishhook? Or the church throws out the image of a saint that used to be carried around the fields for a bountiful harvest. Well, there's always a cunning person who can help you find your fishhook. 
and anthropomorphic images from churches sometimes found new homes in the dwellings of the local peasantry who kept them as domestic deities, perhaps put on the table or in a high seat every Christmas and given offerings of food and drink, as was the case with the numerous Faxe of Sietestal and many other examples from across the country. To make a kind of long-winded linguistic analogy, it is kind of like some Scandinavian countries have official written languages that often, traditionally, and sometimes even by design, are completely different from how the commoners actually speak. Not everybody, of course, but I happen to be one of those people. And honestly, I don't really mind it. Because I think it strengthens, rather than weakens, my regional and linguistic identity. In the sense that there is a clear line between the two. Much like the people that we're talking about in this podcast probably knew not to bring their stuff into church, right? Just for example, it is not to be denied that Norway by necessity has adopted pragmatic written norms that could not possibly in any scenario actually reflect the actual way that many of us speak because we speak many different dialects, even down to pretty distinct grammatical differences. And why do I even bring this up? Well, it is relevant for the dichotomy of religion and whatever you want to call it, magic or superstition. Isn't all of this a matter of perspective and arbitrary distinction? What is language and what is dialect? My mother tongue is Norwegian, or so I'm told, but I don't speak as the people do in textbooks. And if I should choose to write as I speak, that might be fine for personal correspondences on social media between myself and people from the same area as me, but it would not be considered proper Norwegian. So every day it could be said that I attend the church of uh, my language, and let's say I know the grammar in and out. I pass as a user of my written language norm pretty well. Let's even say I'm a teacher. Maybe I translate texts. Maybe I teach other people how to spell or what is proper grammar, even then. Is this how I speak or communicate outside of that capacity? Vernacularly? Nope. But they can influence each other. And I don't necessarily have to be loyal to each context in every situation. Because the cathedral of written Norwegian does not give a flying fuck about how I actually speak. And in some countries, this means that the vernaculars are suppressed. In Norway, the written norm followed Danish examples. It was kind of a blessing in disguise because it meant that the two categories become distinct. The difference between the regulated and unregulated, between the official and the haphazard, between knowing your Lord's Prayer and knowing more than your Lord's Prayer. But to return expressly to the subject of black books, obviously this is stigmatized. This is not something that you want people to know that you're in possession of just because they're so... uh, Stigmatized. It's the Mysterium Tremendum et Fascinans, the mystery that makes you tremble but also attracts. Whether the actual contents really are that subversive is kind of a different topic. It's more the idea that these things are dangerous, ambivalent, subversive. It's kind of in their nature that you don't want people to know that you have these tricks at hand. You're not gonna spill your fucking beans in front of the entire village like your fucking pen and teller. And even though the local community can gain benefit from people who are in possession of these books, uh, these people are not necessarily the person you invite home for tea, right? Sometimes we find black book sorcerers in Scandinavia that are itinerant. They're moving around. They're drifters. And itinerant magicians is something that we see in Scandinavia even in the Viking Age. 
This probably follows the idea that people who practice sorcery aren't like regular people and therefore cannot really function in society like regular citizens. They might be drunk and morbid and depressed and frankly their presence scares people. To reckon with the subterranean you kind of have to have a little bit of the subterranean in you. But that also depends on the person who possesses the black book. You know, it's the difference of vigilantes and police officers. More about that later. Anyway, so on the topic of the contents of the black books, these books contain anything you might imagine from the repertoire of cunning folk. There are charms and benedictions to cure diseases, stop bleeding, read fortunes, reveal the identity of thieves, make oneself impervious to shots, cuts, and blows, charms for gambler's luck, to manipulate love interests and make Faustian pacts with the devil. There are also lists of fortunate and unfortunate days in the calendar year, and pretty straightforward technical recipes, say, for 18th century equivalents of napalm, and even straight-up parlor tricks to amaze your friends. Really, they are kinda general miscellanea of obscure and esoteric knowledge of the widest possible sense. One page might tell you how to cure erectile dysfunction or provide a charm to have your way with a woman. A few pages down you'll find a spell to heal a broken bone, or an instruction on how to capture moles and burn them into powder, or make someone shit themselves as long as you like. Or, in one case, to create a tiny dog out of a big breed by feeding them hard liquor while they're still puppies. The black books really challenge our perception of what magic really entails in the early modern world. Perhaps we tend to think of grimoires as these kind of monumental tomes, but many of these are simple paper screeds of only a few pages. The script for this episode alone is probably much bigger than many of them. And then there are those that are quite comprehensive and were probably worked on by several different hands across a couple of generations. And it's obviously like sort of a living tradition all the way from say, 16-1700s up until the early 20th century even in parts of Scandinavia. Some of the Swedish black books, the Svartkunstböcker as they're sometimes called there, are as recent as say the 1930s. So that's recent enough that people who were interested in this stuff would have been able to look up scholarly inquiries on the matter, which does raise some source critical questions as well. I am not really aware that this is the case for Norway, but I suspect that this is actually a matter of academic categorization. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a bit of an antiquarian bias where the scribblings of a folk healer in Hedmark in the 1920s isn't really seen as part of the core tradition of sorts, uh, which may or may not really be the case, but it could also be because such recent material hasn't really been collected in Norway. I honestly don't know. Either way, some of the most influential studies of Norwegian folk magic specifically are from the late 18 and early 1900s, and I have noticed that some of the scholars of the time, like Axel Ulrich, tend to be under the impression that they are living at a time where all of this stuff is basically dead. And that assumption just hasn't aged well. Because looking at it retrospectively in 2022, that is just blatantly not the case on many accounts. And it's almost baffling that they didn't see it themselves, because they actually lived in a time where people still, on some level, harbored these quote-unquote superstitions. Though I would perhaps be inclined to say that, generally speaking, the tradition does follow and kind of gets watered down by the religious trends of its time. There's a certain difference between being the guy who goes around snipping fingers off of dead folk and the guy with the warm hands who allegedly cures cancer. These two may exist in kind of a continuum. 
If my theory holds that Protestantism initially reinforced Norwegian folk religion, then how did this meet its demise? Well, it has to be acknowledged that the double front line of Puritanism on the one hand and rational materialism on the other has been the bane of Norwegian folk mysticism in many aspects. But I'm probably actually getting ahead of myself here. We should kind of talk more about the magical practitioners themselves and how the Black Book and Grimoire tradition touches upon a rather dark chapter of the European history of ideas, namely the persecution of witches. There is a connection there, but not necessarily how you might think. It might seem weird that I'm only addressing this now towards the end of the episode, but it has to do with the specificities of Norwegian folk religiosity, which challenges our preconceptions about witchcraft. Speaking of double standards, we have this idea of a fundamentalist and closed-minded patriarchal clergy locked in kind of a battle against the largely feminine population of demonized cunning folk. It's easy to assume that it was all religious puritanism all the way down, and therefore we throw the baby out with the bathwater in imagining that this was a world of witches and cunning folk on the one side, practicing magic, and on the other side there was this strictly scriptural, and in some regards, materialistic world of the church. But this, in Scandinavia at least, simply is not true. I do not mean to downplay some of these atrocities. What I mean to say is that by leaning into this notion, we forget how goddamned endemic magic was both as a practice and as a folkloric motif. In many cases, the official church position on sorcery was completely disconnected from how normal people saw it. And the Nordic witchcraft trials actually defy many of our modern assumptions about it. On Iceland and in parts of Fennoscandinavia, for example, almost all of those who were executed for witchcraft were actually men. On the mainland, Sami people were disproportionately affected, and witchcraft, so-called, relates of course to their indigenous religion. Certainly not the sort of sorcery that is the focus of this episode. Of course, the most famous Norwegian witch who was actually executed was Anna Peter's daughter, the wife of Absalon Bayer, who was initially accused of witchcraft on the accusation that she had killed her husband's uncle by sorcery in order to pave her husband's way to the title of bishop. She was acquitted, much thanks to her husband, but later faced different witchcraft charges after she became a widow, and was ultimately burned on April 7th in 1590. As always with witchcraft trials, it is difficult to tell where the horseshit begins and ends, but it might in this case be significant that she was the wife of a local priest. Though as far as I know, she was never accused of possessing a grimoire or anything like that. We must assume that some of the contents of the black books correspond with the repertoire of local cunning folk, wise men and women. And they might have been rumored to possess grimoires, but more often than not, this probably was just vulgar speculation. Clearly, some literate commoners did possess black books on occasion, as some of the witchcraft trials seem to demonstrate, but originally these people were probably few and far between. To many peasants, this sort of stuff just wouldn't have been attainable, probably. Though that is not necessarily so much the case later on. An important determining factor for the public acquisition of written magic came, unsurprisingly, as a result of efforts to teach the public how to read, specifically for Bible studies, and now we're kind of in the mid-1700s on. That does not necessarily mean that these people were taught to write, however, which is kind of a separate skill set. But the fact remains, my friends, that it would have made written magic a hell of a lot more accessible to the common folk. It is reasonable to assume that commoners did in fact acquire black books and copy them by hand, then of course adding stuff of their own as they went along. Let's assume that you yourself was not much of a scribe, maybe your weird old uncle was. He might have loaned a little paper book from one of his other bookish peasant nerd friends and copied a few pages for himself. 
it seems wherever you go in the rural world, there's always the guy who kind of sticks out, right? And maybe punches above his weight class intellectually, but doesn't have the means to actually travel or leave his peasant life behind to take an education. So at the end of the day, he sits by the lantern and reads whatever he can get his hands on. I like to imagine that it was sometimes people like this who came into possession of the Black Book. But, taking it from the top, it is more likely that many of those who possessed grimoires belonged to strata of society who were employed in positions where they had administrational duties or where reading and writing was an essential skill, that is, clergy, public servants, military officers, and so on. There is a stark difference between black books as they actually appear in physical reality and how they are presented in the world of legend, which, as I already mentioned, is a much more terrifying object than what it actually is. And there are often legends about how once you've acquired the black book, it is impossible to get rid of it. How it cannot be harmed by fire, for instance. Or, conversely, you have to get rid of it before you're dragged off into hell when you die. Even in the 20th century, old people, sometimes recalled older villagers from their childhood who were reputedly in possession of the black book. You know, the kind of guy you'd call upon to chase away the wasp nest but seemed kind of shifty otherwise. The assumption was often incentivized by some perceived skill or feat that they had demonstrated, like being able to extinguish house fires or driving away pests by means of spoken charms. Oftentimes, rumors about black book possession served to rationalize some miraculous thing that had happened to this person, like being the unlikely survivor of a statistically lethal accident, or to provide a plausible explanation for the powers that they were perceived to have. It served to explain the idiosyncrasies and perceived ambivalence of local eccentrics. Very often, there's an element of mischief and humor. In one legend, a man wagers that he can make a rooster pull a timber log as if it were a draft horse. Lo and behold, he makes it happen. The rooster kicks around the yard with the lumber in tow, so that people can scarcely believe their eyes. But a maid standing by calls bullshit and says it's all trickery. Though, as you can obviously imagine, you don't ever wish to cross these people, even when they double-cross others. So our wizard makes it so that she feels as if she's standing in rising water. Our maid does not want her skirt to get wet, so perhaps out of pure instinct, she lifts her skirt up as high as she can thereby flashing all the bystanders, who are probably just as flabbergasted by that sight. As the saying goes, seeing is believing. The language that follows these people is that they know stuff, and it's very often imagined that they know stuff, are cunning, or wise, because they are in possession of the black book. But if you remember what I said just a few minutes ago, it is clear from surveying the material that a lot of the earlier Scandinavian grimoires were intended specifically for an ecclesiastical audience, with benedictions and prayers to be used in exorcism and such. And then others, again, catered, for example, to Swedish nobles. It is in some cases obvious that the physical grimoires are Nordic bastard children of one or many German grimoires that were circulating around. But as time passes, specifically up in the 1700s, there is perhaps somewhat of an increase of books that seem to have been in the possession of commoners. And perhaps the more telling aspect of these is the presence of distinctly local vernacular elements and folk beliefs. But the connection between the clergy and black books was always very strong in Norway in particular, both in truth and legend. In 1662, for example, a certain woman by the name of Trug Astri was sentenced to death on the accusation that she had provided students of the Stavanger Cathedral School with a rudimentary magical education. These are, of course, boys and young men who were on the priestly career path. And there is even documentation strongly indicating that parts of the clergy, including bishops, were lending each other magical texts. In the popular imagination, 
Individual priests were sometimes ascribed great magical power, even in their lifetime. The priest Hans Jakob Wille addresses this in his description of Selio Parish in Telemark from 1786, that the commoners there, like other places, quote, are very convinced by the prejudice that every priest is quite experienced in all sorts of witchery, though certain priests are greater masters than others, who are then called wise priests, who own the black book Cyprianus, wherefrom they get their wisdom, and by which they read the devil both to and fro, as well as do cures and miracles." End of quote. A very common legendary motif is that of the Black School of Wittenberg, where budding theologians would study magic with none other than the devil as their tutor. Roughly in the part of Norway where I'm from, there used to be a charcoal burner who apparently walked around with his garters loose, and for reference, traditionally, Norwegian men wore short breeches up until the Industrial Revolution, so this might be some time in the 1800s maybe, first half of the 1800s or something. So the story goes that he went to the Black College of Wittenberg and made last place in the exams. When the devil then went ahead and said that he had to go straight to hell for flunking the test, our man kindly asked the devil to wait for him to tie his garters, which of course, he never tied since. A more famous story is about the northern Norwegian folk hero Petter Das, a renowned poet and priest who is said to have had supreme control over the devil. He also attended, guess what, the coal black university of Wittenberg, and again the devil was his tutor in the black arts. When Sir Das came out last in the exams, this seems to be a theme, the devil stopped him on his way out and told him to come back with him down to hell. But Das responded cleverly. He pointed at his shadow and said, that's the last guy. The devil figured that the logic checked out and Petter Das's shadow was never seen again. There are plenty of other stories that could be told about this, like how he piggybacked on the devil through the air and over the sea to preach in Copenhagen. As payment, the devil wanted the souls of whoever fell asleep during the church service. But Petter Das preached with such divinely inspired conviction that everybody stayed awake throughout the entire ritual. The idea of the clergyman as sorcerer and cunning man may seem counterintuitive to many of us. But maybe, considering the historical context, shouldn't really come as a surprise. Clergy served many functions in pre-industrial society besides performing church services. Besides playing the part of mediator between the sacred and the profane, which of course gave them this sort of power, the local priest was often the most educated man around. It was not unusual for him to double up as the village doctor or veterinarian. And often we see that the wife of the priest is uh, treated as some sort of cunning person as well. It is precisely the fact that he is a man of God that gives him the power to command the devil and bend nature to his will. Or that is how his magicianship is rationalized in the legends anyway. It is just really fascinating that fact and legend kind of join together with the figure of the Black Book Priest. In popular imagination, the Black Book Priest is separated from the witch, in the sense that the witch steals and does harm thanks to some alliance with the devil, while the Black Book Priest uses his cunning to deceive the devil and force him to act as a source of wisdom, and that makes him a more powerful protector of the village and congregation, even though some legends do paint him as sort of an ambiguous figure and often acts in ways that are, for lack of a better term, pretty eldritch. He can be seen sometimes in the dead of night, giving out communion to the dead. He instinctively knows who in the congregation is a sinner, and he can see crimes happening in real time even though they're far away. The Black Book Priest is visually identifiable by the fact that he casts no shadow, or parts of his body might be discolored. Let's end the podcast with a few stories about these people. <clears throat> 
Pastor Dreyer in Okra had a bit of a habit of making nocturnal visits to the churchyard. People wondered what he did there, and his serving boy decided to make him quit. One night, the boy dressed up as a ghost and sat down on one of the graves. When the minister arrived, he went over to the boy and asked his name. The boy didn't answer. The minister asked again, but still the boy made no reply. Then the minister said, I ask in God's name, who are you? But the boy remained silent. With the pastor's patience exhausted, he started scratching a circle in the ground around the boy. And immediately, the boy began to sink. Now he tried to scream, but he found no voice. And by the time the minister had gotten all the way around him with his staff, the boy was entirely underground and was never seen again. <laughs> Let's hope he learned his lesson. And then there was Pastor Trunhus, who often used the black book, and used it well. One Sunday morning, as he was leaving to go to church, he got a bad feeling that something had happened to his milkmaid. So before he continued, he checked by the barn. Lo and behold, the milkmaid had fucking hanged herself. And that's not even half of it. The devil was still standing there with his hands around her neck, freaking choking out the dead body. Trunhus then ordered the devil to stay right there and wait for his return, then went about his usual priestly business. After mass, he brought some people over from the congregation and showed them the devil and the milkmaid. And um, uh, I guess that's how the legend ends. I'm not, not really sure why he saw the need to do this morbid show and tell, but maybe it's implied that he saved her soul before the devil got to it. Well, I don't really know. <laughs> and then there was the Yuletide Eve, where... And then there was that Yuletide Eve where the priest at Hoa in southern Rugaland was out riding on his horse when he suddenly saw a bright shining light projected from a great mound. As he approached it, he saw that the mound was raised on pillars, and under the mound he saw brilliant lights and a great big host of Hildur people, of subterraneans who were singing and playing and dancing, drinking and carousing. As the priest pulled over, he shouted to the hidden folk, What are you so happy about? What do the spirits of the damned have to celebrate about Christmas? As he said these words, the mound immediately collapsed on top of them, and terrible screams and wails erupted. Then the minister rode away, but after a while he felt bad for what he had said. He turned his horse around and returned to the mound. And then he said, In the name of Jesus, let every knee be bent, those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue shall swear that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. And no sooner had he said this, before the mound reopened, and the subterraneans once again began to sing and dance. So that was a good deed. Indeed. I see. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Brute Norse Podcast. Um, that song was Daria Okmonshien's Orkestern with a drug-laced fever dream called Columbia. A Finnish tango orchestra from Stockholm, if you can believe it. So why this particular topic right now? Hmm, could there be some sort of ulterior motive here? Could there be some kind of agenda that might have influenced my choice of subject? Well, it just so happened that I released a book quite recently, kind of sort of pertaining to the stuff that we've been talking about in this episode. It's a neat little pamphlet of sorts, 50-60 pages long, and it's called Love Spells and Erotic Sorcery in Norwegian Folk Magic. This is a curated selection of charms, spells, and sorcerer's recipes from Norwegian grimoires and vernacular tradition on the topic of love and eroticism. I'm selling it for $9 in my big cartel store, which I think is a generous asking price for what it is, and I did everything myself short of physically printing it. I'm proud of the little thing, but not too proud to link it in the show notes below where you can purchase it for a little bit of boudoir reading, if you know what I mean. I'm gonna tell you right now that this is the way forward uh, for Brute Norse. I'm gonna be cutting back a little bit on the deep dive essay podcasts. I'm gonna still put out some freaking uh, bog buddies pretty soon. Uh, I got some other interviews. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to cut down on the ephemeral shit that uh, nobody will remember in a few years. And I'm gonna start focusing more and more on uh, physical printed material. Next stop on that station will be the Brute Norse zine, which is gonna be called The Fool's Mirror. And on that note, I would love to just extend my thanks to everybody who has and continues to support Brute Norse through Patreon, and obviously all of the people who bought my book, because that has really done a great deal to finance the next step of this multi-stage Scandi Futures rocket that I'm trying to launch here. So, yeah, thank you and good night. You've been listening to the Brute Norse podcast, where we walk backwards, ever backwards, into the fucking future. Good night.